Hey everyone, I'm Benjamin Norton. This is Multipolarista, and this is part two of a discussion that I had with the Pakistani scholar Janaid Ahmad. We talked about, in the first half, the U.S.-backed coup against Pakistan's elected prime minister, Imran Khan. And we talked about the geopolitical reasons behind this soft coup, this political coup that is very similar to the U.S.-backed coup in Brazil in 2016. We discussed, for instance, that Imran Khan had helped to improve relations with Russia, which really angered the U.S. He refused to condemn Russia over its military intervention in Ukraine. He also signed economic agreements with Russia. Imran Khan, likewise, improved relations with Iran. He called for the U.S. to lift its sanctions on Iran. And then, of course, Imran Khan was very close to China. China and Pakistan are very close allies. That's not necessarily new, but he did help to improve those relations. And we discussed how Imran Khan refused to normalize apartheid Israel. He strongly supported Palestinian liberation and resistance against Israeli colonialism. So in the first part of this discussion, we addressed the reasons behind the coup, the large protests in Pakistan against this coup, the U.S. government's role in overthrowing Imran Khan. In this second half here, I'm continued to be joined by Junaid Ahmad. He's a Pakistani professor and scholar and writer. And in this section, we talk about who Imran Khan is, what his politics are, his party, the PTI, the, the Movement for Justice. And we talk about the kind of two-party dictatorship that has dominated Pakistan for decades and how Imran Khan managed to break out of this two-party dictatorship. And then, of course, what the role of the military is, the very powerful military in Pakistan, which has backed coups throughout the history of Pakistan. And then we conclude the, the interview, the discussion, talking about what the future could look like for Pakistan after this soft coup and the largest, some of the largest protests in Pakistan's history. Those were the protests against the coup. So without, with all that said, without further ado, this is part two of my discussion here at Multipolarista with the Pakistani academic Junaid Ahmad. Can you briefly talk about the Sharifs? Because now we've seen that Sharif's younger brother, uh, Nawaz Sharif, is the former uh, prime minister of Pakistan. Because of the meddling of the military and the corruption, all this, Pakistan has had a lot of prime ministers. Sometimes they only serve a year or two and then they get removed. And so for people who don't know, Nawaz Sharif served as prime minister three times. And really, he dominated Pakistani politics. For, for many years until Imran Khan kind of broke the back of that kind of two-party dictatorship you talked about. Before, you had the PPP, which is this kind of center-left party, which over the years has become very neoliberal, like a lot of you know older left-wing parties that had a left-wing history, but then in the 80s and 90s, they became neoliberal. And so you had the PPP govern for a while. You mentioned the Bhutto family. Then I mentioned that there was a coup backed by the U.S. of this very repressive right-wing dictator, Ziaul Haq. And then after that, you've kind of had the Pakistani Muslim League, and there's two factions, the Q and the N faction. But this kind of right-wing neoliberal party, the PML, Pakistani Muslim League, has dominated Pakistani politics. And specifically, the Sharif family 
before Imran Khan came to power, they have dominated politics. And it seems that Imran Khan is now going to be replaced by the younger brother of Nawaz Sharif. So can you explain what this family is, what their politics is, what their allegiances are? Absolutely. Ben, I must first say that I, I wish that um, outlets like Democracy Now! would do the type of research that, that you have done uh, on the country. Um, you know, even half the amount of research that you've done would be a, a great start. Uh, and we, we can get to why I say that in, in, in a minute. Um, but, but yeah, the, it's uh, as I was saying, these two political parties, the Pakistan Muslim League, uh, of the Sharif uh, uh, brothers and the Pakistani People's Party have dominated the political life since the 1990s. Uh, th just one thing about the Pakistani People's Party. Now, as you say, this has moved from uh, left to center, left to utterly neoliberal and corrupt. The, it was founded by the uh, father of Benazir Bhutto, uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, in the 1970s. Now, his name is important because Imran Khan has also referred frequently uh, to him and uh, his example and the horrible example made out of him as uh, the coup we, against him. Yeah, absolutely. And the execution. So, absolutely. So he was a uh, quote unquote, I mean, I, this term is becoming so discredited, <laughs> populist uh, leader. Um, and he was uh, very much, he was, he talked about kind of Islamic socialism and this type of thing. So an incredibly popular, particularly after a decade of military rule, which was uh, ousted in, by mass protest, and of course, following the horrible war in East Pakistan that led to the creation of Bangladesh. So the country was kind of hungry for something different, for something new. And he spoke about what uh, his slogan was roti, kapra, and makan, uh, bread, uh, uh, bread, clothes, and shelter. Right? It was very much kind of a, a pro poor. And, you know, some of his policies did attempt to. To, to do that, to implement a, a more social redistributive agenda. However, his own feudal background uh, very much constrained his own willingness to implement some um, fairly social, de social democratic reforms in the country. However, it was all very much too much. It was too much for the military. It was too much for the many right-wing forces in the country. And it was too much, most importantly, for Washington. He was, again, standing out as a very independent uh, leader of Global South, denouncing uh, Washington, had denounced what they were doing in Vietnam and, and Indochina, had also held a, a massive organization of Islamic conference uh, summit in Lahore, where, where uh, you know, forget about the kings. And he had Gaddafi there, Muammar Gaddafi. He had Yasser Arafat. He had these types of people there um, uh, with him. And so... And perhaps the, the biggest crime was that after India had established its nuclear program, he started to pursue a similar one inside Pakistan. And while all of these uh, combined to... Well, and really know, briefly, and also uh, Zulfikar Bhutto was, was seen as pro-Soviet. He tried to improve relations with the Soviet Union, which is another... Major no-no for the U.S., obviously. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that, that was uh, very much part of it. Pakistan's, by the way, the relationship with China, anyone, you absolutely said it correctly, that this has been consistent across whatever government or regime, military, civilian, since 1962. I think they, they came together 
uh, on the basis of kind of having a common enemy, which was India. India. There was the, the war with <laughs> India uh, over the border that China had. And then after that, good relations with, with Pakistan. Consistently good. I mean, there's no ups and downs here. Like This isn't like the relationship with the United States. Uh, this has been consistently uh, a good relationship. And, and, and it was, in fact, Pakistan, which in the early 70s, which facilitated the American, uh, the beginning of the American relationship and engagement with China. People should remember that. They facilitated uh, Nixon's trip to China and so on. Uh, but, but coming back to Bhutto, by the end, I mean, by 1976, 77, uh, Henry Kissinger had written directly uh, to uh, Bhutto, Zulfiq Ali Bhutto, saying, if you do not desist from the nuclear program, we'll make a horrible example out of you. And they did. Uh, through a judicial coup and execution uh, later on, the military was able to launch uh, a, a coup against him. General Zial Haq, who you spoke about earlier, one of the most brutal, vicious military dictators of the country, um, ousted him in a coup and then later on hanged him. And, and that was fully backed uh, by the United States. So Imran Khan points to that. That, you know, he says that, of course, you know, all sorts of low domestic forces, etc., may be opposed and so on. But something like this really happens when you have most likely Washington's hand in it. That's always attempts to kind of undermine, destroy any type of independent uh, national project uh, within Pakistan or for that matter, any country of the global south. So he, he refers to what happened to Zulfikar Ali Bhutto as... Uh, to he refers to that in comparison to what he what's going on with him uh, today. That's very ominous. But of course, I mean these these mass demonstrations aren't going to make it easy for his opponents to, to get rid of him. Uh, sorry, yeah, and, and, I, and I'm sorry. Coming and, back to the the Sharif. Well, one second. Here, sorry, here's ahead, an yeah. article. This is an article that was published this March in the South Asian media. Foreign funds being used to attempt regime change in Pakistan. Imran Khan warns. This is from March 28th in the print, which is a, an Indian media outlet. And, and they pointed out here, I mean, this was, this was an incredible speech. This is a speech that Imran Khan gave to a big rally. And he talked about the evidence of foreign funds for the coup. He said some people are knowingly trying to, top, trying to topple the government. Of course, that's exactly what happened. And he later named the U.S. politicians involved. We'll talk about that in a second. But in, in regard to what you said, Junaid, I mean, this is a relevant quote. It's an incredible quote. Hmm. This is what this is what Imran Khan said a week before the coup to a big rally of his supporters. Quote, he said, he said, the governments were changed with the help of people living in Pakistan and recalled for uh well, yeah, and recalled former Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's execution due to circumstances prevailing in 1979. And then here's the quote. Our country was being threatened because of the deeds of our old leaders. The governments were changed with the help of people living in the country. So Fikar Ali Bhutto, when he tried to bring a free foreign policy to the country. Now, I mean, that's a clear sign that he's telling his supporters that Bhutto was overthrown because of his, quote, free foreign policy. And of course, the implication is that Imran Khan was telling his supporters that he was also being overthrown because of his free foreign policy. Absolutely, Ben. And um, 
let me let me just get to that in one second and first answer uh, what you um, asked before in terms of the um, Sharif brothers, right? So you know all of these people speaking now about how Imran Khan and his PTI Pakistan Tariqinsaf came to power with the help of of the, of the military. Well. The 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 uh, the Sharif family and their coming to politics is directly a result of the from the cultivation of under General Zial Haq uh, and the military. There were nobodies before then, neither in politics nor even in business. And of course, through politics, they became uh, the, one of the richest families in the country. So it was um, Zial Haq uh, and his attempt to find some democratic uh, cover, uh, some civilian cover for his his regime, who which cultivated. Uh, the the house of Sharif Nawaz Sharif Nawaz Sharif's father and of course his his brother. So they came with the help of of the military and the intelligence agencies who consistently supported them throughout the late 80s and 90s um, in opposition to <clears throat> the Pakistan People's Party, right? Which they were still afraid of um, uh, well, until now. Of course, it's become fully neoliberal. At that time, still at least rhetorically had a center-left agenda. So they, the Nawaz Sharif family completely supported, patronized by the, the military. And they, uh, again, they became one of the uh, major uh, political parties, the Pakistan people, uh, Pakistan Muslim League of the Nawaz group. And you're right, there's a Pakistan Muslim League uh, Q, Qaeda group, which came into existence during Musharraf's period. Musharraf was looking for some politicians to give him uh, some legitimacy, so he cooked up this PMLQ. But anyway, so it was through the support. They would be nothing without the support. They would be nothing in politics or in business without the support of the military throughout the 80s and 1990s. And you've, you've seen uh, Nawaz Sharif, the elder brother, being prime minister, and the younger brother, Shabazz Sharif, being uh, the chief minister of Punjab through much of this period. And right now, he, as you say, he is the most likely candidate for being uh, prime minister uh, of the country. His brother, uh, you know, incredible corruption uh, and was is now indicted on so many accounts for, quote unquote, medical reasons. He had he he left the country in uh, to, to England. And of course, for medical reasons. And now he's ready to come back. All of a sudden, everything uh, has improved his his platelet count, his red blood cells. It's quite hilarious. And so now he's, he's making his return to the country. In addition... Well, Junaid, and, and yeah. of course, the optics of this corrupt longtime former leader who has over a billion dollars in wealth. I mean, he's a billionaire. And where is he residing? In the former colonizer of yeah. South Asia. Yeah. I mean, Which the tells you, British tells you a lot. Yeah. I mean, it tells you a lot. I mean, this is exactly one of the things that Imran Khan was hitting home in that UN, in his UN speech. What the The... Look, our countries are, are maldeveloped, underdeveloped uh, because our elites can exploit them with your help, with your assistance. These are perfect examples. I mean, what is he doing there when he's plundered the country? Why is the so-called civilized West, you know, uh, so-called believes in rule of law and all of these things? And, and they're housing these criminals. And they did the same with the former leader of the another political party from from Karachi, the MQM, Altaf Hussein, and sitting in England for the longest time. Uh, so Nawaz Sharif, you know, went to England, and he's done this many times. Even when he was ousted in 1999, when Musharraf came to power, these guys never faced trial or anything. The, the, the Saudis, 
on his behalf, asked Bashar, please let him go. And then he took refuge in Saudi Arabia. Now, some of these places we often say, uh, this is the last refuge for scoundrels in our country, places like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, as you know, when uh, Ashraf Ghani flew from, uh, <laughs> uh, fled Afghanistan, you know, tried to go to one of these Central Asian countries. They said, look, we're not going to take you. And then he goes to the United Arab Emirates. So we have to understand these and, places. And stole, and stole hundreds of millions of dollars. Exactly, in the exactly. <laughs> that's, that's not an issue for these places, including London, it seems. So uh, th th this is the, the, the record. I was going to say that in addition to his younger brother, he has groomed his uh, daughter, Maryam Mar uh, Sharif, Maryam Nawaz Sharif, uh, to also succeed uh, him in the party at, at some stage. She's been mobilizing, et cetera. So she's, she's ready for her appointment as well. But this should give you a sense and our audience a sense, Ben. I mean, how these political parties operate. These are the big, these are the ones that are uh, leading us to civilian democracy in the country. These huge kind of family dynasties, which, you know, these two are. Uh, it must be said, politics was used by them to, to, to plunder the country and make a massive amounts of accumulated wealth. The House of Sharif. And the house of uh, Bhutto Zardari. Asif Ali Zardari, your viewers may or may not know and should know, was considered the most corrupt person in the country. He's the, he was the husband of the late Benazir Bhutto. And during Benazir Bhutto's time in power, they would call him, they'd go from Mr. 5%, 7%, 10%, maybe even more. But that, that would mean he would take a direct cut in any kind of <laughs> business and transaction in the country, small or big openly i mean flagrantly doing this and of course he after benazir's assassination which he may or may not have had in but it's clear that you know when we ask you know uh Cree bono who benefits from something it was clearly him this corrupt guy became the president of the country so on the one hand you have that and the house of Shreve, and these two families lo and behold are the two richest families in the country <laughs> yeah and so imran khan comes to the scene by breaking that two-party dictatorship and he creates this party. Again, it, it's important. The name is important. The Movement for Justice, uh, the PTI, the Movement for Justice, right? And right. He, he is seen, we talked about, he's seen as this figure who's called Taliban Khan. And not that, that, that's, that's actually not a smear from the right-wing conservatives. That's from the kind of neoliberal uh, elites who often are, you know, to simplify my understanding of Pakistani politics, tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the PPP and these kind of technocratic neoliberal elites oftentimes are, they, they try to use more secular politics to win over voters. And then the PML, the Pakistan Muslim League, PMLN, they try to use kind of conservative identity politics and, and talk about Islam, but neither really offers any social justice or anything. And so you come, you have Imran Khan comes to power with this preaching this kind of Islamic populism, fighting for justice for the oppressed and poor people. And he wins in 2018. And let's talk about what he's done. I mean, you know, there are valid criticisms in your article that you published in Multipolarista. You talk about some valid criticisms, specifically, you know, allegations of patriarchal views, also allegations of not being a very effective you know, a politician. I mean, that makes sense because he didn't have a lot of political experience. He was a cricket player. But aside from that, I mean, you know, no politician is perfect. Obviously, they're about criticism. Let, let's talk about what he's done in the past four years. And not just, of course, domestically, let's talk about his foreign policy and why you think 
the he brought brought the wrath of the elites upon him. Right. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean it's it's very important to get into this. I I don't think I've written or said anything. I no, I'm sure I haven't that didn't entail significant criticisms of uh, Imran Khan as well. Uh, but you know, coming back to that uh, the Taliban Khan thing, and the, the the interesting thing with that is that on the one hand, uh, the liberal so-called liberal left is speaking about him as as Taliban Khan. And the religious right in the country is speaking of him as a Jewish agent. All right. So he had uh, his, his, his former wife. Oh, his, yeah, yeah. His former wife, uh, Jemima uh, Goldsmith, um, who's uh, from, from England. And, yeah. you know, and who they had a, a very amicable uh, separation and divorce. It was it was and she said it. It was clear that he was dedicated to something important. That is the political life in Pakistan. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that was too much for her. So, so which they have a very amicable relationship. In fact, she was one of the most outspoken uh, opponents of drones, uh, the drone program in Pakistan and England. She mobilized, uh, you know, lots of people came to Pakistan and speak. So, you know, she, she, she but but the fact that he was married to her uh, made him some type of a Jewish agent. So let's be very clear. You know the you know whatever Islamic messaging he he puts out, it's not like that's supported by the the religious right in the country, not at all. Uh, and this this of course many of our uh, liberal left friends won't want to admit because they want to portray him as some you know archbearer uh, torchbearer of the religious right of you know militancy of all of this. I mean these guys want to kill him, and you're saying that it's it's really farcical, but. Well, one one quick note for people who don't know, Jemima Goldsmith. I mean, she's a liberal journalist. She was an editor of the New Statesman, which is this kind of like center center left British magazine. And you know, I think this actually is an interesting point because it says, at least for me, it says a lot about the politics of Imran Khan. He was kind of part of this kind of international cosmopolitan elite. I mean, he was very he's very wealthy. I mean, he was a an award-winning, very accomplished, very successful cricket player and team leader. And he was married to, you know, this journalist and lived, you know, he had time living abroad in the West, right? But he decided to give that up to go and get involved in Pakistani politics. And to me, that actually says something about him. You know, he's not a leftist, but the fact is that this guy does have an ideology. He does believe in social justice and he did give up this life as a wealthy, you know, uh, ex uh, Pakistani in abroad expat, yeah. right? He gave right. that up to come back to get involved in to try to transform Pakistani politics. No, Ben. I mean, this is absolutely the case. I mean, this is why he was welcomed into political life in the first place. Like we we should know. Let Let's take have have some perspective on this. A third party party entering, uh, you know, Sui Generis out of nowhere. Uh, in any political context, we should know that from the United States, elsewhere, is almost impossible, right? I mean, and actually winning and coming to power where you have an established kind of two-party uh, diopoly, that type of a system uh, in place. So the reason he was welcomed is not just because he he, he was uh, this great cricketer and, and led Pakistan to a championship, was because that afterwards... He took exactly what you described, his international standing amongst, yes, the, the kind of um, global, uh, I mean, 
certain sections of global celebrities, the elites, and this type of thing. He took his standing and then <laughs> brought it to Pakistan to do immense amount of fundraising. I, you know, I remember, uh, for example, someone like Princess Diana, you know, when, when she was alive, brought her on so many trips to Pakistan, uh, who then helped him. You know, of course, you, you probably know, Ben, she was then considered an outcast in the royal family as well. And many think who was, uh, was murdered, assassinated by, by them as well. Uh, but, you know, he, he basically used the standing he had for fairly good purposes inside the country. Uh, there's no question about that, which is why he was able to make his dent into the political system, which, again, we should remember is, is nearly an impossible thing for any political context in any political country. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was Imran Khan's standing. But coming to what you're saying when, when he, when he uh, comes to power and how his, his rule has been, look, on the domestic front, he inherited a, a country, I mean, co completely impoverished. Foreign reserves were down to a low. A lot of money, as soon as he comes out, people don't realize, a lot of the money of the elites immediately pulled out of the country, right? I mean, we wish we had capital controls here. We didn't. We don't. And so a lot of this money, we, we have some now, but at that point, you know, when you have billions upon billions going outside of a country, a poor country like Pakistan, that has an impact uh, on your country. So this is not to say that his um, economic uh, governance of the country has been great. Not at all. I mean, uh, he, he inherited the situation. He uh, didn't have the greatest uh, of, of advisors, his own kind of thinking on this. I mean, not very developed. And so he, in fact, you know, which he railed against before uh, in principle, he had to accept a loan from the IMF. Now, uh, the problem that elites have had uh, with Pakistan on the domestic front is that he hasn't implemented those austerity, quote-unquote austerity reforms, harshly enough. So he, he had done so a little bit, but he takes like uh, one step, quote-unquote, forward, which is actually, you know, a step uh, backward in terms of its impact on, on the social majorities, but then, quote-unquote, a step backward in which he then uh, 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 begins some type of a subsidy program. So he's done recently for fuel prices, for uh, electricity. And so this is one of the reasons that's been boiling up for a while is that no longer do the domestic elite and especially the, the foreign elite and the IMF and so that want to uh, uh, ram through this type of severe austerity program, no longer can they trust him anymore to, to, to implement that. So there's no question that it's, it's, it's you know, he's not done much uh, for the, for the, for the you know, working poor in the country and those classes, but he inherited a horrible situation. Then COVID came in which, of course, you know, even... Uh, friends at the Economist, this kind of reactionary <laughs> magazine, even they rank Pakistan. As Lennon famously said, the the voice of British millionaires. Exactly. Today, adjusted for inflation, that'd be British billionaires. <laughs> right, right, right. So you know, even they had to acknowledge. Well, Pakistan did a pretty good job during this the, the whole COVID thing. You know, they ranked it like number two or so on. And you know, I'm not saying necessarily that's because of some great policies of Imran Khan, but it, but. It, it, it came out better than a lot of countries. But, of course, it had an impact. So, uh, you know, there's there's much to be desired uh, from him on the domestic front and must, much to be disappointed about. And, and, and part of that 
is what he's kind of admitting now is that he says, I was too busy in a campaign project at that point um, in 2018, especially in 2018, when it's, you know, when we were ourselves were surprised that, look, we have a real chance of winning here. I didn't pay sufficient attention to some of the corrupt jokers and clowns that we got as part of the party. Now, I mean, many will find that incredulous, but some of us that also know that, you know, the, he was, you know, full campaign mode and he had, he did hand over some of these duties to others in the party. So he admits that this was one of the major mistakes that we should not have relied on some of the so-called electables who decided to join the party. Uh, we should not have, welcome them into the party and he's got and this is in some ways this has been a good experience for him a lot of the traitors from within the defectors within the party have now been exposed and uh and so th this was this was a huge mistake it's like it's it's understanding that imran khan uh was not able to implement many of the things that he wanted to and again his platform and you you expressed it earlier this idea of an Islamic welfare state. He keeps speaking about what the uh, the state uh, that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that he established a strong welfare state. I mean, you know, who cares about whether he's accurate about the past? The point is, what is he saying about the present and is it good as, or, or not? And if clearly, in a context like Pakistan, uh, this is something progressive to, to, to move towards an Islamic welfare state, constantly speaking about the poor, the marginalized, and uh, and about a sense of justice, compassion, and mercy. Of course, to the to our liberal, neoliberal uh, left friends in, in in Pakistan, this is kind of oh such such dangerous religious talk uh, and so on. You said earlier that you know they say things in in a secular framing like the PPP. But that's actually you know actually they they use quote unquote Islam as well when they need to. Uh, but of course, th their messaging is not an an Islam on the side of social justice. They're using it for all sorts of other ends, right? I mean, they, the PPP and this PMLN, and PPP has this historic, is aligned with the most right-wing conservative group, the uh, JUI um, in Pakistan, led by what they call uh, Molana Diesel, Molana Felzer Rahman, because he has he's hugely cropped in the uh, natural gas uh, business. And so they are aligned with all sorts of the, these characters. It's, it's the particular type of Islamic messaging that they despise when it comes to Imran Khan. And as far as many of our uh, liberal and secular elite, it's like what you say, that they cannot fathom the fact that someone who, you know, uh, was educated in the West and went to Oxford and had spent so much time abroad, that this guy would come back wanting to enter Pakistani political life, you know, speaks to the values of the people, dresses like them, and so They can't stand that. They're like, what if... if why aren't you speaking our vocabulary of kind of a neoliberal emphasis on our the way we want to speak about development or human rights, etc.? Why aren't you speaking in our language? Why do you bring in Islam in all of this, right? And the fact is, he has been the most committed to interreligious pluralism in the country, right? I mean, he's restoring these Sikh temples, constantly speaking. Their narrative is can if even scrutinized by a five-year-old, then it cannot stand. Of course, it's not scrutinized by anyone. They just get massive airtime. And, you know, the democracy now uh, is a good example. But let me let me just also say that it was very, it, it, we also understood that Imran Khan 
uh, in, in initially coming to power. Look, he he had made some problematic statements on uh, with regards uh, to to women, and yes, a, a very conservative notion, Islamic notion uh, of women. But this was also an instance in which there was a lot of pushback uh, from all sections of, of society when on some of the things he said. Uh, with regard to female sexual assault and and this type of thing, that he affect he 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 was able to be pressured and change his views. I mean, I think he really uh, understood it and and then changed his views, which led him to be kind of one of the uh, strongest proponents of uh, you know very pr uh, pro women uh, legislation, anti domestic violence, anti all types of sexual assault. So I mean, I think he also is, has learned uh, from these things. So, I mean, it's important to maintain that critique, to push uh, him and, and his party on these things. But it's also important to say that's not the reason why elites want him out. That's not the reason why Washington wants him out. Uh, and, and those have to do with, as I said, on the domestic front, his uh, insufficient obedience to that agenda, right? And which is manifested recently by... Uh, by um, I I implementing some subsidies for things which, you know, the IMF has, has no time for. It's calling for the removal of subsidies. It's ca causing calling for more austerity. And on the inter international foreign policy front, as you say, Pakistan, one of the things, Pakistan was under enormous pressure by uh, the, the Gulf countries, uh, of course, by Israel and, and the United States, uh, when that whole normalization drive began, right? When when the United Arab Emirates, the Saudis were pressuring... The so-called Abraham Western Accords. Countries. The Abraham Accords, you know? I mean, uh, you know, between countries who were always... I mean, they called it, you know, these kind of uh, accords, peace treaties. Oh, I mean, these countries were never at war. These countries were always collaborating. Now it's just out in the open exactly. between these uh, Gulf monarchies and, and, and Israel. And so, but... Well, Janet, really quickly, for people who don't know, we should also provide important context that Pakistan has a, a very complex relationship with the Gulf monarchies, largely because one, the Gulf monarchies are extremely wealthy and have given a lot of loans, especially Saudi Arabia to Pakistan. And also because so many Pakistani migrant workers are in the Gulf and they are often basically enslaved. They're treated in horrible conditions. They're, they're trafficked. They're passports are taken from them but there really is a threat that that's that's power that the gulf regimes hold over pakistan because if imran khan does something that angers saudi arabia or the uae or something they could threaten to expel those pakistani workers which means that the remissions that they send to their families which is an important stream of income for pakistani families and for the pakistani economy that could dry up Absolutely. I mean, then, and I'm glad you raised that because that's such an important context to Pakistan's ability to maneuver uh, and um, carve out an independent foreign policy, you know, because I mean, this is part of the same architecture of international power and control. When we say Washington or the Gulf countries, yeah, it's, called it's imperialism. basically the same. Right? It, it, <laughs> imperialism. Exactly. Precisely. Right. Exactly. And so during this norm, uh, quote unquote normalization process in which the Gulf countries obviously were on board and they were pressuring other Muslim countries. So they were able to succeed in the case of a country like Morocco, for example. 
But of course, Pakistan would be the big prize, right? I mean, Pakistan, this huge country, nuclear armed, uh, you know, that was the ultimate prize for Israel and the United States. And they wanted their intermediaries, the, the, the Gulf uh, monarchies, to do to, to place that pressure. And there was immense pressure. And I remember you know, this is something that we were quite active in. We had we did so many kind of interviews, etc. And the reason was, then, uh, uh, you know, to his credit, Imran Khan virtually stood alone amongst our ruling elites in opposing this. All of the opposition political parties more than willing to get on board. Um, all, uh, our military elites, at least a significant section of them, also willing to play play. Imran was opposed to it. And I remember this was such a tense couple of months uh, in Pakistan, which there, there was this discussion. They didn't outrightly refuse initially. I mean, Imran kept on making statements, but it was like still. We, we And I did so many you know programs and shows with all sorts of friends. You know, we take uh, Professor Ilan Pape, or Professor Saad Abu Khalil, and all, all of these people uh, opposed, uh, who, who gave great critiques and that we were able to provide uh, to the Pakistani public. So to his credit, um, he uh, he 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 maintained his uh, basically his position on this on this question of normalization, which was the position of the Pakistani people. And so, I mean, that was an it was a period of immense pressure in Pakistan. And I'm glad you raised that relationship with, say, Saudi Arabia as well as the UAE, where so many Pakistani workers um, are, are you know are located, and a relationship in which the Saudis. You know, we'll, we'll sell cheaper oil, we'll give loans and that type of thing. All of these things, not only did the Saudis um, put in jeopardy then, that is, they, they, were, they were using these points as leverage. But this really came to head. And again, this was a, a core uh, part of Imran's uh, uh, position on, 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 on the international issues that made him such a target was the emergence of a counter-hegemonic bloc within the Muslim world, where you had countries like uh, Turkey, Iran, Malaysia, maybe even Qatar at that point, um, willing to come together. Um, and, you know, it was it was no secret. These guys were trying to challenge the traditional Saudi-led hegemony that is often manifested through the Organization of Islamic Conference and, and other venues. And there was a very important summit in Kuala Lumpur in December 2019 that was being hosted by President Mahathir Mohammed, right? I mean, this incredibly kind of legendary figure in not only Malaysia, but in the Muslim world who, you know, it's, it, you know, it's claimed and it's, there's truth to it, obviously, that that d developed Malaysia, you know, significantly over the past few decades. So, and who, who very much developed a very close personal relationship, a deep affinity for Imran Khan when he visited Malaysia. So Imran was was going to be kind of one of the chief guests at this uh, summit. Days before, he summoned uh, to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and told in, no, uh, in, in very explicit terms by uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, this, this <laughs> leader of Saudi Arabia, that you're not to go there. And if you do, we're going to start deporting Pakistani laborers. We're going to end these loans, stop these uh, subsidized loans. I mean, he went with the you know, full nine yards and Imran had no 
uh, had no, uh, you know, at that point he had no option but to but to comply. So that that was very much part of it. It's 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 not only support for Palestine and and these things. It is very much part, uh, an attempt to be part of a counter hegemonic project within the Muslim world, which everyone knows uh, cannot succeed without Pakistan's participation participation uh, participation in it. So he was constrained uh, by by all of all of these things. Um, in terms of whether it's on uh, Palestine, in which, to his credit, he never gave in to this point. We, we had an organization, Islamic Conference Summit, uh, just last uh, month that uh, Imran Khan hosted. Even in there, I, I think probably to the discomfort of many of his guests, again, he spoke about how we have failed <laughs> to stop Israeli brutality against the Palestinians. So as, as I argue in the piece... Had he not been so vocal on particularly the Palestinian issue, I'm not sure if he would be so so much in trouble internationally. But it's been that. It's been about a counter-hegemonic tendency uh, within, within the Muslim world. It's been about uh, speaking about global Islamophobia. And when he does so, it's not just kind of uh, a rhetoric around, okay, you know, stop hating or, or you know, be, um, or, or fearing Muslims. It's, 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 it's really about structurally, you know, stop this kind of global system in which Islamophobia is one part of kind of a global racist, white supremacist uh, project. So he, he speaks about it in, in far more structural terms than just kind of a, a, a visceral thing, which, and, and one of the core parts uh, about that, uh, Ben, has been his rejection. Many of us are, are have, have know, know this very well, many Muslims, and are, have become so fed up, this kind of idea of of moderate Muslims uh, and and then radical Muslims. Of course, the moderate Muslims are the like uh, you may have heard this moderate Arab regimes, right? <laughs> this has nothing to do with their theological orientation. It has to do with their political orientation towards to Washington. Washington, exactly. Right? And so his his and at the UN stage, kind of rejecting these things. You know, this we're used to kind of Muslim leaders just playing nice, being whatever. His open rejection. Of this imperial language and vocabulary to describe Muslims, you know, th th this really, uh, this really angered and 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 made uh, anxious many many of the Western Western capitals. So you know, Ben, there's there's so many of these factors that when combined together, it's not very difficult to see why he would have so much opposition from from those places which 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 prefer some type of a very um, feeble, compliant, subservient, servile regime in, in one uh, Muslim country or the next, or for that matter, throughout uh, the global South. You know, you mentioned just so we can, you know, I like to get into the geopolitics of these things and understand, you know, here's a map of, for people watching, not just listening, there's a map here of Pakistan. And my understanding is that a lot of these uh, drone strikes were in what's called the, the FATA, not, not like the Palestinian FATA, FATA, the federal tribal areas, right? That's, That's where right. a lot of these protests were. And my understanding is that in Pakistani politics, you know, it's very regionalized, right? So you have like, you have the PPP based um, traditionally in, in, you know, their own area in Sindh, I think, right? That's right. And then, and then Punjab has traditionally dominated the politics. Yep. And my understanding is that like the tribal areas have historically been completely ignored. Right. By main major politicians. And right. Imran Khan, when he came into power in 2018, he was trying to bring in 
these populations who had historically been not only ignored by the central government, but bombed by the central government. And that, I think, partially explains his mass popular base, right? right. Well, well, Ben, um, yeah, I mean, not only ignored, but because of, in some ways, being in, ignored like that, therefore, uh, fairly autonomous. So, th which is why when we say FATA, federally administered tribal areas, that's, I mean, <laughs> that gives a different kind of connotation. Actually, the federal government doesn't ha didn't have much to do with them. And for uh, sure, there was in there's incredible lack of uh, development, investment, and that type of thing, which surely needs to happen. But of course, they also then, uh, you know, uh, developed a culture of living autonomously, having their own autonomy, and so on. And, and they're fine. They never bothered the country. The country never bothered them. And so all of a sudden, uh, the United States is pressuring the Pakistani military to go into those areas, uh, in these heavy military operations, bomb them, and so on. This was just outrageous, right? Ben, we've never had something like this in those areas. Of course, you're absolutely right. Uh, it began with American drone strikes. Uh, in those areas. And that was actually, you're absolutely right, that's where the momentum of support came from Imran Khan, certainly in, in those areas, but also throughout the other country that, throughout the country that also recognized this is not only immoral, but a, a gross illegal violation of, of Pakistani's uh, sovereignty. And I remember during that time, we hosted uh, people like Medea um, Benjamin, uh, the good friend Kathy Kelly had come. I mean, part of these marches along with Imran Khan against drone strikes and actually going to those areas, which was incredibly difficult uh, and dangerous. So you're you're absolutely right. And I mean, ju just really quickly, I think it's it's probably important also for pe people listening and watching this to understand uh, that when Imran Khan came into political life, he came on uh, came with a background of incredible credibility. Um, in the Pakistani population and respect for not only, of course, winning uh, the, the cricket championship for Pakistan in 1992, he was the well-respected captain, but after that, becoming one of the biggest philanthropists in the country, opening up the first uh, free cancer hospital in all of Asia, I don't know, maybe even in the world, um, named after his mother who had died because of cancer, uh, and involved in all sorts of other charitable stuff. So, when he came to politics, this person was incredibly respected, you know, no, not a, an ounce of corruption or anything like that. And he was also uh, he was also someone who said that he want he decided to go into politics because he realized that his charitable work as as needed as it was, was not going to transform a system which continuously will produce that mass poverty uh, and immiseration. So that was the reason he went into politics. And uh, and so you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, he started PTI, the, the political party in 1997. And after 2001, uh, what his main uh, popular mobilization was uh, against the war on terror, because as we all know, that was the, that was the major phenomena consuming all of our lives uh, at that point uh, in, in Pakistan. And Therefore, and thousands of Pakistanis died. Thousands. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, I mean, you know, <laughs> as, uh, you know, one of uh, your great politicians in the U.S. said once, uh, or or um, one of the Bush administration officials, we don't do a body count, you know, <laughs> when it comes to uh, the same, the same applies uh, here. I mean, in, in, in those tribal areas. Um, 
And, you know, it was very unfortunate, but Imran Khan, you know, stuck to his guns. The idea that this military just kind of loved Imran Khan and therefore brought him to power, no. And I mean, they despised him because it was very clear that uh, at least the, the, the top brass of the military, they're obviously complicit uh, in the in the war, war on terror. And of course, they undertook their own massive military operation. So, you know, all of these people, there's 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 now kind of a realization of, of the rights of these people, of, of the Pashtun people and so on. You know, Imran Khan was the first one speaking about this uh, about this issue. So I, I think that all of these issues uh, throughout the war on terror got him into trouble uh, with, with Washington. And it's important to say what I just uh, I just said right now is that the, it's not that the Pakistani military loved him. It's just that the, the level of corruption in the opposition political parties uh, was even bad for their own economic, the political economy of their own uh, interests in the country. And whether it's the feudal dynasty of uh, of the House of Sharif or the feudal dynasty of the House of uh, Bhutto Zardari, these are the two political parties, the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistani Muslim League of uh, the Nawaz Sharif group, the two dominant political parties which have uh, completely controlled Pakistani political life throughout the 1990s and early uh, 2000s, basically up until uh, when Imran Khan came to power in 2018. So his, his movement uh, on, on the foreign uh, policy front was opposing the war on terror, opposing, uh, you know, conflict and violence. I mean, to this day, he says we're, he's more than willing to be a partner in peace, but not in conflict. And the other domestic part was getting rid of these thoroughly corrupt political parties uh, that had just plundered and pillaged the country since the 1990s. I mean, this, is, this is not disputed. Right. This is it's just a question of saying, well, you know, I mean, no one can cover this up. It's just like, well, we hate Imran Khan more. Uh, no one denies the fact. Uh, and so he wanted to not only oppose this, these corrupt political system, but open it up uh, so it can get beyond these two, uh, you know, so-called democratic political parties, which are internal feudal family dynasties. <laughs> you know, when Benazir Bhutto uh, was assassinated, uh, and, you know, as much as obviously that was incredibly tragic, you know, one of the, uh, you know, prime ministers of Pakistan and very well known as one of the uh, first women prime, uh, heads of uh, heads of state in a Muslim country, when she was assassinated, she had uh, written in her will that she's going to bequeath her political party to her son and until he comes to age to her husband, the most corrupt person in Pakistan, Asif Ali Zindari. So, this is sadly the, the type of political climate that he was trying to challenge uh, Imran Khan uh, when he comes to power. And just one point about this idea that uh, the, the military you know, brought him to power and was so supportive of him and so on. You see, in Pakistan, we think, uh, or we, I mean, basically, I'm <laughs> speaking about our intellectual class elites of the country, think that, that because a civilian... Uh, prime Minister comes to power who may share some foreign policy objectives at that particular time with the military. Therefore, they make it makes him a puppet of the military, them in cahoots, and so on. I often say that if that's the case, then virtually every U.S. Uh, administration that I know of <laughs> was what they call the hybrid regime, you know, a, a, a civilian military. That is to say, I mean, it's very few American presidents that I can think of that defy 
the national security state that defy the Pentagon and the deep state. None. I mean, right, none. There, there, there was one. His name was JFK, and we saw what happened there. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So uh, the fact that he shared aims of okay, the, you know, of, of 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 the United States getting out of Afghanistan soon, etc. All of these things, uh, and and maybe the the military at that particular point uh, had agreed with those uh, ideas as well. Everyone thought, well, you know, they're, they're such, uh, he's a puppet, basically, of the military. He's serving their agenda. Well, I mean, these, <laughs> these people must have been very disappointed when he became incredibly outspoken on issues which the military was like, whoa, 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 you know, <laughs> you're going too far. And it's come to head here. You're absolutely right. I mean, here we had such, like, open sedition <laughs> by, the, by the military chief of army staff you know, Imran Khan is the elected prime minister. He has articulated Pakistan's policy on these questions. The chief of army staff comes on TV the next day and addresses huge audiences saying the exact opposite. That we, this is, you know, wrong. The Russian invasion is wrong. Our relations with the U.S. are great, have always been great. Basically begging the U.S. that please don't abandon us. Consider Imran Khan as this... Uh, uh, you know, uh, this outlandish character that hopefully we'll get rid of soon. So he was eventually, uh, effectively begging the United States, don't abandon us yet. We still uh, have a lot to offer you and, and so on. So, you know, th th this was a joke, uh, Ben, that he was any a puppet of the, of the military. His positions, tell me when the Pakistani military have ever spoken so loudly on Palestine, on um, other issues of, of global Islamophobia, of the elite plunder of of uh, countries of the global south, and the with the collaboration of obviously global no elites of the global north. I mean, this is not the military's agenda at all. Well, this has been an excellent conversation. I mean, I kept you so long, and it's very late there. I know, or well, very early slash late <laughs> in the morning. But I want to wrap up with one final question because we've hinted at it here. And that is the the left in Pakistan. You know, we talked about Imran Khan's ideology. He has this kind of populist social justice politics, which is important, but he's not a leftist. I mean, he doesn't I mean, he does talk about the importance of helping the poor and welfare and all those things. But he's not talking about capitalism. He's not talking about challenging, you know, the billionaire oligarchs. There is a left in Pakistan, but, you know, it's very small. And, you know, I know some people from the Awami Workers League and all of these movements. And like there are there are some good groups, but being realistic, my understanding is that they're very small and there's a lot of divisions within the Pakistani left. So let, let's just conclude talking about that because we also talked about the problem in the Pakistani left of there is this kind of elitism sometimes because the impression is that a lot of poor and working people are very religious and conservative and therefore, you know, they're they're seen as supposedly backward or whatever. So there's this very antagonistic relationship, in my understanding, in Pakistani politics between the left and Islam sometimes, although there are Islamic socialists. But it seems to me that from the friends I've talked to in the, on the Pakistani left, that there's a struggle of trying to square that circle of trying to find a way to complement socialism through like Islamic socialism and I mean, whatever. Maybe this is me imposing my foreign <laughs> understanding, but let, let's just conclude here talking about the situation with the left, because unfortunately, it seems like some of them have actually kind of 
been supporting this coup and basically allying with the U.S., which is sad to see. Uh, no question about it, Ben. I mean, that's that's the saddest thing, obviously, for me personally, is always identified of someone uh, of the left. Uh, look, uh, from the beginning, there have been many reasons, even not related to what we've been speaking about here in terms of uh, uh, foreign policy or, or domestic policy. There was what we what we have coined Imranophobia uh, right right from the beginning. I mean, uh, be actually, you know, even before he came to power, again, it was this discomfort uh, with a person expressing strong uh, views, uh, social justice, but sometimes doing it within with a Muslim framing, with an Islamic framing of these things. So there was, again, a great discomfort, discomfort for liberals uh, and people on the left thinking that this was, okay, some kind of a right-wing uh, expression of the traditional religious uh, clergy and uh, th those those uh, that crowd in Pakistan, which, of course, it hasn't been. If that was the case, he wouldn't be hated uh, by, by all of them. So there was... There was that, as I said before, it was an an inability to uh, to understand or an, an unwillingness to even give a chance to someone who doesn't again uh, speak or, or or behave like they think he should have, being in the West and so on. So there was a deep Imranophobia right from the beginning, and it must be said that many sections of our of of the left in Pakistan are Islamophobic. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't think that should be a surprise uh, to to anyone. I mean, just as just as many in the West um, are obviously even within the liberal left can, can be Islamophobic. I mean, I I have to say this before uh, we we conclude. But uh, the the recent uh, interview last week with Democracy Now, trying to understand the situation in Pakistan, you know, unfortunately they they got one of these uh, very deeply kind of Islamophobic uh, native. Uh, elite orientalist in, in Pakistan who basically said either there's, you know, us kind of liberal human rights friendly civil society folks, or there's the Imran Khan Taliban like individuals. I mean, a, a grotesque kind of falsehoods uh, that were being spouted, but, but could get away with. And I'm saddened that democracy now would not do more research about these things and that they would fall into these, you know, horrible stereotypes about uh, not just Khan, but about Pakistan in general. So it's sad to have our, our, our much of the left that often buys into these stereotypes. And what they don't understand, uh, at least many of them, some of them are trying to, is that, look, sometimes a faith-affirming you know, uh, discourse or faith-based discourse on social justice should also be part of the general movement of, of social justice. I mean, just the same way it was in Latin America, in terms of liberation theology, no one's arguing that Khan has this. I don't think Khan has a even a complete understanding of what he's trying to articulate. I think he's that has just been developing. I think that that is a legitimate critique, and it, you know, even through this process, I think he's kind of understanding like, okay, what what are the limitations of what I've done, the, the, both the theory and the praxis. So I think those criti criticisms are fair. The problem is. Many on the, on the left uh, don't even want to provide a space for social justice movements, often articulating them uh, within uh, some type of a religious vocabulary. That doesn't mean uh, and the problem is we consider any and any and all such sorts of expressions as right wing, reactionary, exclusive. That's an incredibly impoverished way of understanding uh, these movements. And the final thing Ben I'll say is is that 
it's it's incredible. It, it it befuddles me, bewilders me how so many people were willing to support all sorts of, all sorts of reactionary tendencies as part of the agency of say the Syrian people. You know, remember our great exactly. You know, th these were Al Qaeda and other reactionary forces more than willing to uh, brook no criticism of them, defend them uncritically as the you know the agency of the Syrian people, the voice of the Syrian people, the revolution, and Khan. <laughs> they consider this kind of great reactionary, etc., that we must oppose at any cost. I mean, look at this. You know, but democracy now, as you know very well, incredibly uh, supportive of what's going on in Syria, unwilling to listen to criticisms. Of, of what was uh, what was the quote, quote unquote mo the moderate rebels, but here you know uh, about Khan. Oh wow, he said he referred to Islam in some of his speeches. He must be condemned as this kind of great defender of terrorism. It's such a farce, Ben. I mean, it, it requires just a little bit of scrutiny to expose this. And so I, I'm it's sad for me to say that yes, I think dominant sections of the left, which again you know they they often are very close their social, cultural uh, background to just liberals in the country. I think that that unites them sometimes. They're kind of a, uh, their, their, their social, cultural um, um, antagonism towards some of the kind of more faith-based, uh, you know, um, uh, faith-affirming, faith faith-based uh, mentality of, of, the, of the people, their values and so on. So, which doesn't make them right-wing. This is what we need to understand which doesn't make them exactly. automatically right-wing. These people, if you see some of the images and videos, you see all types of people in these protests, right? We don't see the, all the women uh, in, in burqas, they'll be in jeans, they'll be in whatever. No one is... <laughs> so it is an absolutely caricature to describe the people that have been supportive of this project of Khan. It may not even be individually of Khan, but it's, it's a tendency within Pakistan to speak to the powers that be, to perhaps try to develop an alternative project to de define them as kind of these reactionary right-wing folks and absolutely uh, caricatured falsehood. So I think that it's important for us to understand that, uh, that yes, even pa the so-called Pakistani left can get it wrong sometimes, or, and, and some of them may get it right. But I think we have to be, particularly, you know, folks sitting in the West have to really understand the that Pakistan right now is not this kind of simplistic uh, uh, country of this divided by, okay, we have these enlightened liberals and this herd, these hordes of kind of religious and conservative right-wing types. It's it's far more complex than that. Uh, and I and I hope that people will learn from you, Ben, in, in how to capture that complexity. <laughs> well, and you as well. I hope people watching and listening to this will... Have, have learned a lot. I've certainly learned a lot from this excellent conversation. I'll just say on the final note here that, you know, I, I have friends who are in the Awami Workers Party and I respect them and I, you know, they certainly know more about Pakistani politics than I do, but it, it is pretty stressful, distressing to see the Awami Workers Party, you know, this left-wing party in Pakistan support the coup. And, and I've seen this again and again where, you know, there's left-wing groups that end up allying with imperialism, and oftentimes they, they don't realize it. You talked about Syria. I mean, how many people who call themselves leftists and socialists ended up supporting imperialism's attempt to destroy the post-colonial Arab nation of Syria? I mean, that a country that was colonized just a few decades ago and, and 
they try to recolonize it again. But absolutely, I mean, it's remarkable how these types of they're more than willing to ally themselves with utterly reactionary, sometimes fascist forces. I mean, look at what's going on in Ukraine, right? I mean, it's, exactly, it's incredible. Whether it's in Syria, these or Ukraine. These reactionary forces we have no problem with. But yeah, when it comes to a character like Khan, yeah, oh, he's the most reactionary thing we've ever seen. I mean, it's it's it, it is it is really farcical, uh, Ben. And and you know, again, I have great friends in uh, the Awami Workers Party. It's probably the party I respect the most um in this. But it's it's amazing how they can't uh, it, it, that these two things uh, must be must be mutually exclusive. That yes, of course we can criticize Khan for policies. But that doesn't mean there's not a real attempt by by Washington and powers that be in, in, in Pakistan to get rid of them. I mean, it's like it has to be one or the other. And so they, they think that uh, they that the fact that they're critical must also that there cannot be any other, you know, there cannot be powers that want him out, which is absurd. Well, you and, don't, and have, it to, also you don't have to be a revolutionary. You don't have to be a revolutionary leftist to be opposed by, by Washington. That's something they should know, you know, of course, very well. Well, but it also, it, it's also important to keep in mind that just because he doesn't have this coherently developed anti-capitalist ideology doesn't mean that he also doesn't have a, a massive popular movement behind him, as we see in these large protests. And you have to be with the people, right? And this is a, a popular movement of not entirely, but of many working people and oppressed people who see a leader that for the first time feels like it, he's speaking for them, for the right. poor and oppressed. I mean, it's called the Movement for Justice. That's the name of the party. I mean, it's not a coincidence. And it, it reminds me of in Latin America, this isn't really that big of a debate anymore, but the question of religion, you mentioned liberation theology. I mean, I'm in Nicaragua and the Sandinista movement Christianity has always been a very important element of Sandinismo. From the very beginning, there were priests who were who were guerrillas who were martyred, who were killed in the revolutionary struggle. And they said, you know, Jesus was a communist. Jesus was a socialist. And of course, if we look at the, the black liberation struggle in the United States, pretty much every major black liberation leader in the history, in modern history of the U.S. was religious. I mean, Malcolm X, MLK, there's so many of them. So it makes sense that religion is going to play an important role and it can play a progressive role in these struggles. And, and, and you, you know, know I, I've seen that, that's the Islamophobia of this thing. But I mean, we're more than willing to concede that, oh, there could be a, this wonderful Gandhi, the Martin Luther King. They played these great roles. The religion played a great role in that case. You know, even when I visited uh, Cuba, then it was amazing. I mean, some of our meetings that we had was was in a church and I'd be like, because of my own kind of experience, right, of the, of the left in the Muslim world, which is, I'd be like, wow, okay. I mean, this is this is not an issue, right? It's not like a problem <laughs> in these things. So this is something very unique, I think, to the Muslim experience right now. Uh, this idea, and they've kind of bought, you know, the, the entire Islamophobic Orientalist narrative, right? Anything about Islam must be backward and reactionary, right? So the only way that we can have a proper uh, left progressive narrative is that we effectively get rid of uh, Islam. And you're absolutely right that it's so very different in, say, Latin America uh, and other parts parts of the world. So I think this is this is something that I hope our friends within the left uh, will, will, will realize um, to kind of understand how faith plays a very important part of our societies and that it is not necessarily a reactionary impediment 
to our, a progressive movement. Yeah, I mean, Cuba is a unique example because they had a, you know, a, a violent revolution and uh, they had a Marxist-Leninist model. But in Venezuela, you know, the Chavista model is very interesting. Christianity is an important part of Chavismo. And every time you go to a, a pro-government rally in Venezuela, there's always signs and flags of this, this evangelical party, which is pro-Chavista. So religion's very complicated. And it reminds me also of you know, we were talking about Iran and, and Shia liberation theology, right? And and Hezbollah and these groups that that are motivated by this very progressive revolutionary understanding of helping the oppressed and fighting the oppressor. And I mean, that that's common throughout the world and, and Pakistan's no exception. So I, I know I said that was the last question, but I swear, actually, I have one final short question because we're at two hours. And I know you probably yeah, yeah, sleep. No, Ben, I hope you edit some of this. I don't know. I've been just uh, going on and on right now, kind of. No, it's a great conversation. I think people really like it. So the last question I have here, which is a kind of provocative question that I don't want to ask you to try to predict the future with a crystal ball or anything, but do you think that if Imran Khan is overthrown, it looks like right now that he it's going to be difficult for him the military is threatening him although there are these massive protests we saw what happened in 2002 when the u.s backed to coup in april 2002 against hugo chavez and he was ousted for a few days but then he came back because the people demanded him and they filled the streets so i mean we will see what happens in pakistan but let's say that that imran khan is ousted i've already seen people you know my pakistani friends of mine say that he'll come back and he'll come back even stronger. What do you think about that? Well, Ben, from, you know, this is just, you know, the immediate reaction to, to what's happened. Uh, for people who are on the side of Han and BTI, uh, it's it's pretty inspiring uh, what has happened. I mean, th again, throughout the countries. I mean, I, again, you know, many of us did not even expect this. Um, and uh, so what we have seen this kind of popular protests and uprising throughout the country peaceful uh, it should be remembered before our um, western friends say oh this is some muslim uh, violent uprising or anything peaceful demonstrations throughout the country uh, we weren't ex expecting this and i don't think neither was uh, the chief of army staff and the military top brass or the opposition parties now uh, the vote of no confidence has taken place and uh, Imran Khan is 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 no longer uh, the prime minister. However, uh, what what if these protests are sustained and that momentum um, sustained, then uh, this could force whatever new um, government now is is comes to place through this vote of no confidence to call for early elections to be forced to have early elections. So I think th this is the big question right now, that if these protests sustain themselves, the, the, the government will have no choice uh, but to call early elections. And I think that we can expect that to be um, beneficial for Imran Khan, uh, considering you know the, the popular support, considering his commitment now to purge the party of all of these uh, so-called electables that were also utterly corrupt and to an extent prevented him from trying to implement the kind of social justice agenda that he wanted to. Again, this is yet to be seen. I don't want to uh, be misunderstood as saying, well, you know, Imran Khan is, is going to come back with a magical formula for social justice or anything. We hope that people push him 
towards that 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 agenda. Uh, and it seems right now, you know, the, the people of Pakistan, um, a large proportion of them are on the side of Pakistan. And this brings me to kind of the final point. Uh, many of our friends in uh, in the West and the United States, uh, in the left, uh, continue to uh, speak about hearing the voices of, of our comrades in, in Pakistan, the left. I encourage them to also listen to the, the voices of the people of Pakistan uh, that have come out right now. No one is calling for kind of unconditional blind support of Imran Khan, but at least listen to what the people are saying and not necessarily who you consider uh, these the, the, the left uh, to, to be the sole voice of what's going on in Pakistan today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, fortunately, we have people like you, Janaid, who can help translate some of what's going on. Unfortunately, the English language coverage of Pakistan mm -hmm. in the Western media is, is often very impoverished. It's very biased. And not only biased, it's also just very superficial. There's not much coverage. And if there is coverage, it doesn't go much into depth. So that's why I'm grateful that you gave me so much time and you stayed up so late. I know, uh, you know, I know you're fasting and it's Ramzan there. So hopefully it wasn't too hard to stay up. I guess right now, what is it? Uh, like 7 a.m. there, or 8 a.m. Well, so. well, the 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 energy from what's happened today, and even more so, the the joy of the conversation with you has uh, has, has has given me the energy to continue this conversation. It's a very exciting uh, exchange with you, Ben. So I'm I'm very grateful. Yeah, well, I'm equally grateful. And for those who are listening or watching, we are speaking with Janaid S. Ahmad. And you can go to his article at multipolarista.com. This is his author page. And I translated his piece into Spanish. And I, I will tell you, by the way, Janaid, that your piece went, went around Latin America. I saw people sharing it to understand what's going on because the Spanish language coverage is also not very good. So Janaid, he's a professor. He teaches religion and world politics, and he's the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. Uh, Janaid, if people want to find more of your work, where can they where can they find you? Well, I mean, they can find me all over uh, the, the place. So, I mean, I uh, regularly uh, write uh, stuff for. Um, um, uh, Counterpunch. They can find me on on Counterpunch. Many of the sometimes consortium news. Um, yeah, even on uh, uh, our old friends at the Gray Zone. Um, and remember, so I have a bunch of articles scattered, particularly on this issue, um, on a, a variety of uh, alternative media, left wing media. Great. Well, it was a pleasure. And I'm going to divide this into two parts. And we'll, one part will be focused specifically on the coup and all of that. And the other part will be focused more on, uh, on Imran Khan and Pakistani politics. But I mean, I learned a lot. It was, it was a great interview. And I hope everyone watching and listening learned a lot. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. Or you can support at uh, at multipolarista.com slash support for people who want to maybe donate through PayPal or anything. And I'm going to definitely keep in touch with Junaid and I'm going to keep track of what's going on in Pakistan and hope for the best. So Junaid, thanks a lot. Ramzan Mubarak and keep in touch. Thank you, Ben. This was an absolute pleasure. The pleasure is all mine.